0: let me tell you that I am just feeling pricked by James. He's just getting to the core of things, isn't he? As we're studying every week, he's just putting his finger right on our hearts, challenging us, pull back the curtain, look at ourselves really squarely. Um, he's been challenging us to put our beliefs about God into action. And he's Saying to us, after all, if we profess that Christ is Lord, but our lives don't demonstrate that by the way we live or by the way we love other people, then do we actually believe what we profess? And if we actually are speaking out our faith by our words, but then we go and we live our lives as though we don't actually believe, then he's challenging us, do you really believe? Because somehow there should be a connection between what we say about who God is, who Jesus is, and how we live it out in our daily lives. So he's questioning us again. Do we really believe if there is no outward manifestation of our faith, if there's no change taking place in our hearts? Well, I read a story this week that actually sickened me a little bit, and I'm going to share it with you. it was about a prize-winning photojournalist who confessed that he and many other people in his industry, photojournalists, he said that they often remain spectators when, um, and just observing and recording when misfortunate things are happening to other people. Um, he, then he told this, the interview this very disturbing story about an incident in where he was snapping pictures of a woman who eventually drowned. In the interview, he said that he was sent out uh, on assignment by the paper that he worked for, which was the Lawrence Eagle Tribune, and they wanted a lot of pictures of a big coastal storm that was coming in, so he said he went to Plum Island, which was the beach nearby to where he lived, and he said there was this one figure, this woman, standing at the edge of the water a bit of a distance away. And he took a picture of her just standing there by herself on the shore's edge with the waves crashing in at her feet. And he says she was drinking a beer, and a split second after he took the picture, a wave came in and hit the embankment and sucked the sand out from under her feet and knocked her to the ground. He said he then took another picture of her laying on the sand in the shallow water after the wave had retreated. And then he said he was... Probably only fifty feet away from her, and he was shooting her with his telephoto lens, and he saw her in the water and he thought that she was either in shock or drunk. He didn't really know. And he thought to himself, Okay, well, I've am I gonna go make a rescue? Am I gonna go help her? After all, I've taken the pictures, all the pictures that I've needed. But instead he took a third picture. And this picture was a picture of two men approaching this woman who had her hands outstretched, trying to get up out of the sand and the water. He says, I turned around, and with 100 feet of me, there was a lifeguard. So I continued to photograph the sequence. There was someone who was with the lifeguard who got there first. He rushed to her. He was ready to reach out and grab her and pull her to safety, but at the last minute, something stopped him he took another picture. This was a picture of two men backing off as a large wave prepared to crash on top of the helpless woman. And the photojournalist finished the story and said, the wave looked to me like it was 20 feet high, and within seconds after my last photograph was taken, she was covered by the wave, and I realized that she was gone." This prize-winning photographer literally watched someone drown in the ocean while he was just a few feet away continuing to take pictures. What would James say to this man? I think James would have said something like this. What good is it, sir, if all of your skill and all of your accomplishment in the area of photojournalism puts you in the most perilous places that human beings find themselves in, and you choose to take pictures rather than to save lives. And he might also say to us, what good is your faith if it never actually travels from your head to your heart, and it never compels you to do anything to act like Jesus? So this week, we're getting to this, the apex of James' message. This is the passage that we're looking at today, which everything has been pointing to. So everything we've looked at so far in James has been pointing to this passage, and everything we're going to look at after in James is going to harken back to this passage. Because in this passage, he's asking two rhetorical questions. The first question he's asking is, is your faith of any use if you have no works? And the second question is, can that kind of faith really save you? So we're going to look at this passage in two parts. First, we're going to talk about dead faith, chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. And then we're going to talk about dynamic faith, chapter 2, verses 20 through 26. Interestingly, in the whole book of James, faith is a common theme. We know that's, that's a word that we hear over and over again. Sixteen times in the book of James, the word faith is used. Eleven times it's used just in this passage that we're looking at today. The other five times, it's used in a very positive context. But in this passage today, eight out of the 11 times, it's used in a very negative context. So James is really giving us a stern warning today. He's really wanting us to know that fake faith won't save you. And what we're going to learn as we look at this passage is that real faith produces real fruit. Real faith produces real fruit. So let's talk first about dead faith. James is actually going to talk to us about three kinds of faith. He's going to talk to us about dead faith, demonic faith, and dynamic faith, only one of which is actually salvation worthy. He starts off in verse 14 by saying, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So he's saying it's possible, he says, for someone to actually claim they have faith but not actually be saved. I can think of several people I've known in my extended family and family by marriage who have gone to church pretty faithfully and have professed that they're Christians but have actually shown no change of heart, no change of behavior, no no at, revelation at all that any part of their faith had went anywhere beyond their church attendance. In fact, I watched several of these Extended family members become more and more hard-hearted over the years and actually end their life in a very bitter state. Did they have faith? That's what James is questioning. Does someone have faith when they maybe profess with their mouths, but there's no actual change in their heart or in their lives or in any other part? James is telling us that there will be fruit in a life that is genuinely transformed by the gospel. And this fruit will be manifest in good deeds that are birthed out of a changed heart. Jesus talked about the same thing in Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. He said, You will recognize people by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. We know that. I, my husband and I actually planted a fig tree last year. He likes figs. I actually don't like figs, but he likes figs. So we planted a fig tree. And you know, all winter, it's just a stick that comes out of the ground. You actually have no idea what kind of tree this is. And then even when the leaves come out, you're like, I don't even know now I know what kind of tree it is. It's not till the fruit comes out that you're like, oh, it's a fig tree. James is saying it's the same for us. He's saying that, that, that the outward fruit of our lives is what is, gives evidence to the inward state of our souls. No fruit, he says, no faith. And then he goes on to illustrate his point like this. He tells a, a hypothetical story. He says, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they actually need for the body, what good is that? Now, I love that James is, is actually painting a pretty not dire scenario for us. So he's not saying... Imagine that some person comes off the street who's deranged and demon-possessed, and they've made all these bad decisions in their life, and they're filthy dirty, and you could rationalize that you don't need to help this person because they're just going to take your help and go add it to their addiction and bad behavior. He's not giving us that scenario. He's saying, hey, imagine a brother or sister. Imagine one of your fellow church family members comes into your church sanctuary and they are in need. They're in desperate need of the most basic care. He says, are you going to send them away with a pat and a prayer? He's saying, this person is a believer. It's a brother or sister in Christ. Do you look upon their need and send them out naked and hungry? Because if you do, that's not faith at all. Real faith is expressed in love. John says the same thing in 1 John three seventeen. He says, but if... Anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, what good is a skilled photographer if he doesn't put down his camera and rush out into the waves to save a drowning woman? Where if anything is his love for humanity, would we look at that guy for a second and say that he is demonstrating the character qualities of Christ? No. Now, of course, there are people who engage in great acts of mercy who do not have faith. Okay? We need to be very clear we are not saved by what we do. We are saved only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So James is not saying that somebody can be saved by helping the poor or by showing great acts of mercy out in the world at large. But what he's saying is that once saved, acts of mercy will flow naturally out of a heart that's been transformed by Christ's love. Once we are recipients of Christ's love, once we know the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf and we've received his love, it's been poured out into our hearts, that love will naturally flow out of our lives. It will will change us from the inside out. We will be compelled to pay it forward. Verse 17 says, "So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead." James is just saying it simply. Look, a person who makes a declaration declaration of faith, if that person has no evidence of a changed heart or a changed life, then that or any good works of kind, any kind, then that declaration is false. It's useless. It's dead. It's lifeless. John Calvin said, "If." It's faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. How does your belief in who Jesus is and what he's done for you translate into how you love other people? Think about that for a moment. As a recipient of God's mercy, if you have received Jesus as your Savior, you've been a recipient of the mercy of God How does that mercy extend to others? As a recipient of God's forgiveness, that you've been forgiven every single sin you've ever committed and ever will commit, how does that translate into how you extend forgiveness to others? As a recipient of God's compassion and kindness, how does that translate into how you extend compassion and kindness to other people? In other words, how does your walk measure up to your talk? See, James is concerned that the reason our walk and our talk oftentimes don't match is that we may have only an intellectual kind of faith rather than a true saving faith. Do you know the difference between intellectual assent and saving faith? Do you know the difference between the two? So a person who has intellectual assent, this person knows the gospel, knows The Word of God oftentimes can speak Christian language, oftentimes can recite Bible verses. All of this information is sort of wrapped up into the capsule of the mind and stored away as a distant truth. But there is not a heart connection between what this person knows and how this person lives. There's a disintegration between what this person professes to believe about God and how they go out into the rest of their lives and live their daily lives. Um, James says this kind of faith is useless. What good is this kind of faith if it doesn't actually change you, doesn't actually manifest itself in any other way than just in your mind? Now, a person with saving faith is a person who understands the gospel and then engages their heart with the person of Jesus Christ. She's a person who knows that she can't save herself. She's a person who acknowledges that she is a sinner and accepts Jesus' death on the cross as a personal sacrifice, not just a historical sacrifice, but some a sacrifice for her own sins. She believes that Jesus is Lord and she submits her life to him as God and king. And this initiates a relationship between her and God, who's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and then begins a lifetime journey of walking with him by faith. And we know it's a lifetime journey of transformation, right? It takes a lifetime to begin to see the fruits of the Spirit manifest in a person and to to have a a heart change, a change of desires that works itself out in different ways that we live life and perceive life. It's a whole life change, we know. But what kind of faith resembles you? Would you say your faith is more closely like the intellectual ascent or saving faith? James goes on to tell us that even the demons have faith, but they're actually not saved. He says in verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works? Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Are you surprised to know that demons have faith? Demons actually believe many of the same things that we believe. They have a real intellectual faith. For example, they believe in the existence of God. They, they are not atheists and they're not agnostics. They believe that God exists. They actually believe in the deity of Christ. They know exactly who Jesus is. They know he is the Son of God and they know he is God. They believe in the presence of heaven and hell. They believe in a real place of punishment. They believe that Christ is the eternal judge and they felt the effects of his judgment when he died on the cross and triumphed over them for all eternity. They also believe in the power of his word and they actually have to submit to the power of his word. And they believe that Christ alone can save. That's what they believe. And the Jews had this statement of faith that we looked at last year in Deuteronomy. It's called the Shema. It's from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. This was their statement of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James is saying, hey, the demons believe that too. They believe the Lord our God is one. They just don't, and they don't just believe it with their minds, they also believe it with their emotions. They believe it and they actually shudder. They tremble at the thought of who God is. Do we tremble at the thought of who God is? Their conviction about who God is causes them to shake and yet they don't obey or follow the second part of the Shema, which is to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They don't love God, they don't worship him as Lord, and they don't acknowledge him as Savior or King, their works actually reveal who their true allegiance is to. And it's not God, it's the devil. The truth is that real faith brings life. Real faith brings life, and life produces good fruit. Life produces good fruit. Capital L LIFE spiritual life. Faith in Jesus brings us life. And when we have faith in Jesus, that life begins the minute we believe. The minute we believe we receive the Holy Spirit, new life. We're born again, like Jesus told Nicodemus. New life begins. And that life then takes us through the rest of our earthly life into God's eternal presence forever and ever with him. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We get eternal life, but eternal life isn't just for forever. It's for right now, the minute we believe. 1 John 5.12 says, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Where there is no life, there's no spiritual growth, which means there's no spiritual fruit which is then manifest in good deeds. And we know that God created us for good deeds, for good works. He created us so that we could grow up in him and live out our fullest potential. In Ephesians 2:10 it says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So have you received this capital L life, this salvation? Saving faith in Jesus. Have you received this kind of faith through belief in Jesus? And then how does your life reveal your genuine faith? Not just by who you're becoming in Christ, but also by how that is flowing out of your life, by what you're doing. Because being a Christian involves trusting in Christ, but then also living for Christ. They go together. First, we receive the light, life of Christ, and then we reveal the life of Christ as we live out our faith. When I was a young girl, I believed from the time I was about five years old. I grew up in church. I heard the gospel. I, I really believed. I talked to God as a young girl in my bed at night. I tried to figure out what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit meant, how God could be three in one. I just wrestled with these things, but I believed but I went through elementary school and high school and most of college not yielding my will to God. I believed that he existed. There are reasons for that. Part of it is that I didn't understand his word. I didn't go to a church that taught me his word. I also probably had a rebellious spirit, but I had a knowledge of him. But when I look back over my life, it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I fully surrendered my life to him. And at that point, everything changed. My decisions changed. My, um, my desires changed. How I spent my time changed. Where I lived changed. Who I married changed. Everything changed. When I made the decision consciously, God, I actually believe and I actually want to follow you. Because being queen of my own life isn't working so well. I think you can do it better than I can. Real faith transforms the heart, and great fruit is born from the branches that abide in Christ. So next, James gives us examples of people who modeled dynamic faith. So unlike dead faith, which involves the intellect or the emotions only, dynamic faith involves the will. It's powerful, and it's evidenced in a changed life, and it's the kind of faith that comes from the Word of God. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So a person with dynamic faith is all in, wholly devoted to God and his word. And then James is going to give us two examples, which I love how vastly different they are. He's going to talk to us about Abraham, a Jewish man who was devout in his faith, and God called him a friend. He was called a friend of God. And then he's going to talk to us about a woman, a Gentile. Her people were enemies of God. She was a prostitute. Um, But both of these people demonstrated saving faith by their actions. So first, Abraham, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, "Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God." We got to study Abraham a little bit last year as we looked at the Genesis study that we went through, um, and we saw that Abraham believed God in the face of a lot of uncertainties. Now, he he wasn't perfect. I remember parts of the story when he kept trying to tell people that Sarah was his sister, not once but twice. He wasn't perfect, but he chose time and time again to obey God's instructions, to believe God at his word. When he didn't know how God would ever fulfill his promise to bring him a son, do you remember when God took him out into the the nighttime and he showed him All the stars in the heaven. And he told him, one day your descendants are going to be as numerous as these stars. And Abraham believed God. And God looked at Abraham's faith and said, you are righteous because you believe me. And then later he had a son. Remember, he was like 100 years old. It was just an absolute miracle. He has a son. Abraham knows that it's through this son that God is going to bring about his promises to make many descendants for him. And yet God tells him to take his son and sacrifice him on this altar. And that was crazy. None of us like that. Any of us who are parents do not like that story. But Abraham trusted God, and he followed God's exact instructions because he remembered the promise, and he believed that God will fulfill his purposes. And this is characteristic of Abraham's life. Time and time again, Abraham demonstrates his faith by doing exactly what God asks him to do. Abraham, though, was not saved by faith plus works. He was saved by a faith that works. That's how he was saved. Abraham trusted God to fulfill his word, and he lived as though he believed that God would be faithful. Now, the next verse that we get to is a very perplexing verse. James says in this, what he says prompts a lot of confusion um, I don't know if it stumped you when you were doing your lesson this week, but let me read the verse to you. Verse 24. He says, you see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Did you think, what? Because you remember earlier in our study of James, James said just the opposite. And if you know anything about writing the writings of Paul, Paul says just the opposite, So at first glance, it might seem that James and Paul are contradicting each other because James says, okay, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And then we have Paul who says, for we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Are these two men preaching a contrary gospel? And no, they're not. We have to understand these verses in the right way. And we also know that James and Paul highly esteemed each other and they agreed on the same theology. So we have that background as well. But what we have to understand is what the word justify in the Greek means. It's a verb and it's dikalu in the Greek and it can mean two things. It can mean either to declare someone righteous as in like a court proceeding where someone is declared righteous or not guilty even though they may be guilty of a crime. And then the other is um, to say that someone is demonstrating righteousness. So, we have the court, somebody saying, you're righteous, even though indeed they may be guilty. And the other saying that their observable actions, their outward actions demonstrate righteousness. So, Paul and James are looking at the word from a different perspective. It's like Two sides of the same coin. And I'm going to give you a chart to help you understand it a little bit better. It's so important that we are able to approach these passages and know how to think about them so we know there's not a contradiction between what these two things are saying in the Bible. So Paul, he's speaking about the moment of salvation when a person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ and nothing else. Faith alone, not by works. James is looking at the other side of the coin, and he's saying that after a person is saved, that this is the fruit that begins to come out of their life through good works because of their faith. Paul is looking at life from God's perspective. He's saying that um, he uses justified to mean pronounced righteous in the sight of God. James is looking at life from the human perspective. He's saying justified means proven righteous in the sight of others. Paul uses the word justified to mean declared righteous in the sight of God, even though I'm still a sinner. Justification is a free gift to us because of the price that Jesus paid on the cross. It's the root of our salvation. James is speaking to the believers who have already experienced the gift of salvation, and he's using the word to justify, of justified, to describe how I'm demonstrating my righteousness in the sight of other people, which shows that I truly have eternal life. This is the fruit of our salvation. Do you see the difference? Now, Paul, when he's writing in Romans, he's fighting against the idea that people can earn their salvation by their good works. James, when he's writing, he's fighting against easy believism, something that was going on in the church where people are reducing salvation to just mere intellectual assent. They're saying, all I need to do is just how I think about Christ, not that it has to make any difference in my life. That's what he's speaking against. And both of these battles are still raging in the, in the church today. So James goes on to give us another example from the Old Testament. He's going to talk to us now about Rahab. Verse twenty three, twenty five. 25, it says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now, Rahab, when she learned that the Israelites were about to invade the city of Jericho, she believed that their God was the one true God of the universe. She heard rumors, I'm sure, about their miraculous exodus from Egypt. I'm sure she heard about the cloud of glory, the parting of the Red Sea. She heard word traveled probably very quickly in those days about what was going on with the Israelites coming out of Egypt. Now they're coming towards Jericho. And she heard the word, she heard the rumors, she heard the testimonies, and she believed. And then at great risk to herself, she demonstrated her belief by hiding the spies in her house. And then eventually she shared the whole good news about God with her family members. And she eventually was invited to join the Israelites, to become an Israelite, to marry into the Israelites. And later she becomes one of five women listed in the genealogy of Christ. Isn't that amazing? From a Gentile woman belonging to a people group who were enemies of God, hearing the rumors about this God, believing, obeying, helping to save God's people, later bringing her whole family to join with God's people, being married into God's people, having a son with God's people being listed in the genealogy of Christ. I mean, big things happen when we believe and obey the Word of God. The truth is that dynamic faith obeys God in life and deeds. Dynamic faith obeys God in life and deeds. I'm just so moved by Rahab because she had like an inch of revelation. She had like this much. She heard rumors She heard stories. She didn't have a written word. She didn't know the history of Genesis through Exodus. She didn't know the end of the story. She just saw and heard what the Israelites' God was doing, and it was miraculous, and she believed. That's astounding. And she didn't just believe like, oh, I get it. She actually acted. She put her whole life at risk because she believed and she took action, and it could have actually killed her, right? One inch of revelation, and she believed and acted in faith. Now, Abraham had it a little bit easier. God spoke to Abraham. God actually told him three things. He had to leave his land. He was promised that he was going to have many descendants, and he was going to be a blessing to the world. And so he had direct revelation from God. God told him where to take his son and what to do. God promised him the heavens would be his descendants would be as vast as the heavens but even still in each moment he did not know how the story was going to end he didn't know he didn't know what god was going to do with his son isaac he did he believed in god's promises but he knew maybe god would resurrect him from the dead he didn't know each time even though he acted in faith he didn't know how it was going to turn out we have the bible we have the full revelation of god We have so much to make a foundation on our lives because we have the story from the beginning to the end. We know how it all began. We know where we're living right now in human history between the first and second coming of Christ. We know how the story is going to end. We know. We, of all generations of people, should be so ready to not just believe but to actually stand on this word of God and live out a life of faith because we have so much revelation. We know how it's going to end. Dynamic faith results in radical obedience to the commands of Christ. And what I see today in our culture, I see two things happening And I think actually one is a little bit past now because I think this was more of when I was growing up. I think when I was growing up, a lot of people tried to work really, really hard to do a lot of good things to earn God's favor. There was like this heavenly tally sheet, and I heard a lot of people say, you know, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, then when I get to heaven, I'm sure God will let me in because my Good side is going to weigh heavier than my bad side. And it doesn't really matter what I think about Jesus. It's just going to be my heavenly score sheet. I think we've shifted now to another type of approach to God. What I see now is actually a culture where we're leaning so heavily on the grace of God that works have become irrelevant and obedience is unimportant. I think now we live in a culture that says, ah, God is love. God is grace. It doesn't really matter that I obey. It doesn't really matter that I live out my faith. God is just grace. He's just love. Let me ask you, how does your life demonstrate the reality of your faith? And would you just be honest with yourself for a moment? Do you lean more towards the intellectual ascent? Do you lean more towards how you, just leaning on your right thinking about who God is, or do you lean more in what would be the dynamic faith, the walking with God faith, the friend of God faith, the living word, the anchoring your life, the praying, the being in the spirit, the transformation side of your faith? Would you have sent those needy brothers and sisters away with just a pat and a prayer, or would you have been so moved by the spirit to respond in love and provide what they need? Would you keep shooting pictures on the beach just to get the best shots so you could maintain your prize-winning photojournalist reputation? Or would you have thrown that camera down and rushed out into the waves to save a person that you don't know? Do you trust in the Word of God in the midst of the unknowns in your life and the anxieties and the fears? What does the outward expression of your faith reveal about the inward reality of your faith? What James is trying to do is he's trying to help us be integrated. Sin disintegrates. The redemption of Christ integrates. So he's trying to help us grow up in maturity. He's trying to help the inward reality of what we believe match the outward reality of how we live. And as these things come together, we become more Christ-like. We grow up. We become more spiritually mature. So if you want to have dynamic faith, it starts with putting your beliefs into action by obeying the Word of God. And the fun thing is, the more we obey, the more our faith grows. And the more our faith grows, the more we want to obey. And then the more we obey, the more we mature. And it all works together to help us grow up in our faith. Real faith brings life to us because it's an abiding faith in Christ that naturally produces fruit. I loved Kelsey. I don't know how you do it, but she chooses the most perfect songs. That last song that we just sang you know, keep my eyes fixed on you. Keep me abiding. Keep me abiding. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. But we need help. We need help. We need the Lord to help us. and learn What does it look like to abide? Change my heart. Help me to live out this faith that I do profess genuinely that I believe, but transform my heart so I know how to live this out in all of the nooks and crannies of my life and my relationship. So will you stand and let me pray for us that God will help us. Father, we come before you just very humbly tonight and we see ourselves in this passage. Thank you that we are here together studying your word and we're seeking to grow in maturity. We want to understand. We want to be more surrendered to you. We want your spirit to fill our hearts, to change us from the inside out. We want to truly be your light that shines out into our relationships and into our workplaces and our families and our communities, our neighborhoods, our church communities. We want that, Lord. But, but we need your help. We want to declare to you that we're willing that we are willing to be changed and willing to be an instrument in your hands, would you please, by your Spirit, change us? Would you please help us to be living testimonies of the reality of who you are? And may you be glorified through our lives. We want nothing more, Lord. And we ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.